0: Welcome back to the wrestling room. I am excited to share with you today. I've got some good stuff for you and uh just want to warn you uh, my office is here at the back of our property in North Seattle and believe it or not on the west side of this wall is our chicken coop. We have five Buffalo Orpington chickens and one mama was going a bit nuts just a few minutes ago. So if you hear a chicken that's what's up. So she's calmed down, she's kind of tucked in sitting in the sunlight so I think she'll be all right. But anyway I've had conversations recently with with multiple different people and I'm sensing, and it's not surprising, that there's a fair amount of anxiety moving into the new year. Uh, There's so many questions we all have, I understand that, um, but there's anxiety moving into this next year and the media doesn't at all uh, help with this, of course they're just heaping us with gloom and doom and the voices of all the experts telling us how It's gonna be so much worse than it was before and blah, blah, blah. I wanna just declare to you, I don't receive that. I believe 2021 is going to be a fantastic year. And during this message, I wanna share with you why. Because the way we look into the future is going to determine whether this coming year is a train wreck or it is a phenomenal, building, growing, joy-filled experience. So much of our life is about perspective. And before we get started, I want to just read to you from a devotional that my wife bought me for my birthday this year. It's called Jesus Calling. And this particular uh, devotional that we read together in uh, during breakfast in the mornings, this one caught my eye, caught my ear, and I want to share it with you as a way to kind of frame what we're going to talk about today. And so uh, here we go. Buckle up. This is From the perspective of Jesus speaking to you and I, here's what he says to us. I am your refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid of anything, not even cataclysmic circumstances. The media are increasingly devoted to fear-inducing subject matter, terrorism, serial killers, environmental catastrophes, If you focus on such dangers and forget that I am your refuge in all circumstances, you will become increasingly fearful. Every day I manifest my grace in countless places and situations, but the media take no notice. I shower not only blessings, but also outright miracles on your planet. As you grow closer to me, I open your eyes to see more and more of my presence all around you. Things that most people hardly notice, like shifting shades of sunlight, they fill you with heart-bursting joy. You have eyes that see and ears that hear, so proclaim my abiding presence in the world. And that is my intention today, is to proclaim the powerful, abiding, amazing, incredible presence of God in this world right now. He says, I open your eyes to see more and more of my presence all around you. That is my hope. At the end of this message, you will walk away with a sense of God's presence all around you. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Because at first look, you guys, when we look at our world and our circumstances through the eyes of flesh and through our emotions, our first look is not accurate. And when our first look isn't accurate, it becomes very dangerous. Let me give you an illustration. Years ago when I was in high school, uh, my father pastored a church that was literally right off of a very, very busy highway, Highway 140 that ran between Klamath Falls and and, uh, Medford in Southern Oregon. And as we were all socializing after the service one day, we heard a horrendous crash. And we came to find out that this was one of the dear ladies of the church, a dear friend of mine, who had looked to her left into oncoming traffic, looked to her right, failed to look to her left again, and pulled out into a car that was barreling down the highway at about 65, 70 miles an hour, plowed right into her, should have killed her, didn't. It was a miracle, but it was months and months and months of recovery. It messed her up. And in debriefing this situation, my father shared with us as I was a relatively new driver that when you're pulling into traffic, you want to look once, look once, and then look again. That will save you. And that is the theme of this message. When we look only with eyes of flesh and emotions of flesh, we are setting ourselves up for a train wreck, for a car wreck, for a smash up. (laughs) emotionally, in our soul, we have to look twice, look again. And that is the theme of what I want to share with you today. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has never been more real than right now. Many of you know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't trust the first look. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust what your eyes tell you, what the media is saying to you in your ears. That's your first look. But he goes on to say in verse six, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. What does it mean to acknowledge him? The the picture of acknowledging him is of hired staff or servants back in the day uh, of the by days of the Bible who are standing at the back of the room. The master's at the front entertaining guests, but he is constantly give them, giving them signals as what needs what food items need to be restocked, what needs to happen next. And those servants, those hired staff, their eyes are pinned to the master, waiting to take cues from Him. And so that is what it's talking about. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Keep your eyes glued, pinned to our Master who is giving us cues. Take your cues from Him, not from the news and the world and what you see and what you feel in your first sense, your first look, your first feel. That is going to result in a train wreck, in a car wreck. And it's going to set you back and spin you out and mess you up and so I had one of these second look experiences this week and I want to share it with you and then elaborate on it a little bit so first Kings and I'm going to summarize this story first Kings chapter 18 chapters 18 and 19 tell us of this great uh, tell us a great story of maybe the most powerful prophet in all of Israel Elijah He was ministering during a time when King Ahab was the leader of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and his wife Jezebel, who really was the leader, (laughs) reigned next to him. And Jezebel had brought to that kingdom idolatry of a sort that they had never seen before. The Bible says that King Ahab was the most evil king in the history of Israel. He had filled that nation with Sexual perversion linked to religious practice and sacrifice of children to this idol Baal that Jezebel had introduced. So the this the, the country ran with blood of infants and children who were offered as sacrifices to the demons. And In these two chapters, this great prophet Elijah confronts this darkness, confronts the the 450 prophets of Baal who had literally been living with and dining with Queen Jezebel every single day and another 400 priests of Asherah. So there were 850 opposing priests to one. This is the way God does it. This is the way God demonstrates his power, 850 to 1. And many of you know the story of this great showdown. And God demonstrates his power so dramatically. And the 450 uh, prophets of Baal are slaughtered. They're killed. They're executed for their crimes. But when they are, Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, hears about it and puts a bounty on Elijah's head. And though Elijah has just led one of the great moments in all of Israel's history... He succumbs to physical tiredness and spiritual depression. And he flees from Jezebel. And the Lord provides food and water and sleep for him. But where we pick up the story in chapter 19, he's in depression. He's wishing that the Lord would take his life. He's semi-suicidal. Which, by the way, for when you're in spiritual warfare, prepare for such things it's draining. And God comes to him and here's where the story picks up and here's where the Lord showed me some pretty powerful things. So chapter 19 of 1 Kings, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but in verse 13, the Lord says to Elijah, "Lord Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> I think the Lord just looked down and said, oh, you you rascal, I love you. You're an amazing prophet, but you're kind of having a pity party and I love you anyway. But what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah kind of pours out his heart to the Lord. He says, I have been very zealous for you, Lord. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They killed your prophets, which they had with the sword. And I am the only one left. (laughs) The only one left who really loves you really is following you. I'm all by myself in this battle. There's me and nobody else. And now they're seeking to take my life too. And he pours out this story of woe and, and, and turmoil and, and depression. And the Lord doesn't seem to be moved by it at all. And the Lord says this to him. He says, Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness, wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram, another nation. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. In other words, you're going to anoint the replacement for Ahab. And you will anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to replace you as prophet in your place. And the Lord goes on. He says, And it shall come about. The one who escapes from the sword of Haziel. In other words, the Lord was going to use this trio to bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. And he does. You read in future chapters, he absolutely does. But he says, It shall come about. The one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu will be coming and will clean up after him. Jehu shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. In other words, I have a plan already in place to deal with Jezebel, to deal with Ahab, to take care of the darkness. I'm way ahead of you, Elijah. Now go and get this done. And by the way, verse 18, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I almost galloped right on past this, thought, oh, that's very neat. But then I realized, wait a minute. What just happened here? And the Lord gave me a picture of me getting the privilege through this passage and Elijah getting the privilege in the story of looking through a crack in the door of the war room of heaven. And here's what we see, brothers and sisters, and get this, get this. We look through our eyes, the physical eyes, and we see gloom and doom. We feel anxiety and fear and depression and even a desire to just be shut of it all. But God then redirects us and there's light shining out from the war room of heaven. and We peek in and God is at work. He's way ahead of us. He's got 1, two, three, 10, 20, 30 moves. I mean, if you're talking chess, he is so far ahead of the opponent, it's almost ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous. And here's what I want you to see. First look, not accurate. Second look, wait a minute. God is dramatically moving the chess pieces on the chessboard of history. And God never loses. He is the grand master of all chess. It almost makes you feel sorry in a moment of weakness for the devil. He tries so hard to unseat God at the chess table. But God is so far ahead of him. <laughs> he must be frustrated all the time because he thinks he's got a good move going, but God has 12 different moves ready to respond in any any given situation. Look again. Look again. Your first look is not accurate. Typically, eyes of flesh, emotions. Look again. God is at work. God is at work. Now, I want to give you a couple more snapshots, because if we don't take this second look, we're going to lapse into a mindset that we see in Jacob in Genesis chapter 42. Let me give you the background. Jacob, given, has had a hard life. His own brother has almost wiped him out, come to kill him his daughter has been raped his first and favorite wife out of two has died giving birth to one of their sons his favorite son the eldest son of his favorite wife for all he knows has been torn torn to pieces by wild beasts what he doesn't know is his other sons by his least favorite wife 10 sons have human trafficked joseph (laughs) to a bunch of slave traders and he's down in egypt Hang on to that thought, because that's the rest of the story. And now there's a famine ravaging the land. You guys know this story. Many of you who know your Bibles at all. There's a famine ravaging the land. People are suffering. And Jacob sends his 10 sons to Egypt, where there is a prime minister, a leader, who has been raised up and has stockpiled massive amounts of food, literally enough to feed the known world. And so they head to Egypt. They get there, and they are immediately singled out by this leader and imprisoned. They're, they, are, uh, they are accused of spying, and they're put in prison. He lets them out of prison three days later. He interrogates them, finds out they have another brother that wasn't there. The youngest brother happens to be the second son by the favorite wife, who is now Jacob's favorite, <laughs> and he says... Simeon, one of the 10, you're going into prison. You guys go back home, bring back your other brother, the favorite, and get back here. If you don't, you'll never see Simeon again, and you'll never get another bag of wheat or grain to feed your flocks and to survive this famine. So back they go, and on the way back, it gets worse. They open their bags, and in their bags of grain, they're gonna feed their animals, is the money they paid For the grain, setting them up to look like thieves. (laughs) So it just gets worse and worse and worse. So they get back home and they unload this story onto their father, step by step, point by point. And here is what Jacob says. And it's somewhat understandable. This is his first look. He says this, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more more. Simeon is no more. He assumes that Simeon is going to die in the Egyptian jail. He's the one that was held by the prime minister. And you would take Benjamin. That's the youngest son, now his favorite. And here is his conclusion to all of these things. He says, everything is against me. Everything is against me. And you can understand this conclusion. Everything is against me. If you look with your eyes and you allow your emotions to rule you, of course that's your conclusion. Everything is against me. God has abandoned me. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? Where is God? Why do bad things always happen to me? Why is life so hard? Why is it always me? Those will be our conclusions. Everything is against me. But you must look Again, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. Freeze frame there. Freeze the movie. Stop, pause, and then fast forward to Genesis 47, verses 16, or 6 through 13a. In this, in this scene, remember the last scene that we have just frozen the movie at is, everything is against me. And that's what it looks like, first look. Look again, Genesis 47, 6 through 13a. You look at the scene here and you have Jacob and those 10 sons, the 11th, Benjamin, and you have the prime minister. Who is the prime minister? Joseph, the supposed dead son, is the prime minister. And you have this family standing in the room with the king of the world, Pharaoh. What? 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 And here's what Pharaoh is saying. It gets even better. Here's what Pharaoh is saying. He says this, the land of Egypt is at your disposal. In other words, you have keys to the city. You have keys to the whole land. What? Then he says to the prime minister, Joseph, who has so much favor with him because he saved the world. God has raised him up to save the world. He says, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. Friends, this was the Garden of Eden for the world. This was the finest piece of land known to mankind at the time. Jacob is saying, everything is against me. Freeze, pause, fast forward. Now he's literally living in the Garden of Eden. Where was the Garden of Eden? Verse 11, it says, So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. What is the land of Ramses? It means this is where the kings and the nobility lived. Jacob goes from almost starving to death, to living in literally the most lush, beautiful piece of land known to mankind. Look again. God is moving. He's moving the chess pieces on the chessboard of this world, of history. Not everything is as it seems, brothers and sisters. Not everything is as it seems. You must look again. Now, let me give you another snapshot. In Exodus, And I'm going to do this quickly, so follow with me. This is Exodus chapter 14. You know the story. It's terribly, terribly famous. God has delivered the children of Israel out of the new Pharaoh's hand who had put them into slavery and made their lives bitter. And God has delivered them in grand fashion, dramatic fashion. And it says in chapter 14 of Exodus, verse 8, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. So here's what happens. Pharaoh lets the children of Israel go and they're heading out. And it says they're heading out boldly. What does that mean? It means with a high hand. In other words, they were saying, up yours. (laughs) <laughs> Up yours, and no doubt there were some high hands already and high fingers. They weren't a they weren't a real real spiritual bunch. These were roughnecks. They had just seen God clean Pharaoh's clock, and they were reveling in it. And it says they went out with a high hand, which means they were exalting themselves. They were taking the credit for what God did, and they were letting Pharaoh know what a schmuck he was. And then God allows Pharaoh to come after them. And it says, then in verse 9, the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and, pharaohs of, uh, horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army, and they overtook them. In other words, the, the, the most powerful military force in the world is now breathing down their backs, and they overtook them, camping by the sea. So you have the sea beside Pihiroth, one major cliff, and Baal Zephon. So here's what they're, they're between two rocks in a hard place. They're completely trapped there is nowhere to go. And in their minds, they're going to be slaughtered and literally cast into the Red Sea. That will be their grave. And so what they say is this to, to Moses. They cried out to Moses. They said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt? Egypt was famous for graves for their tombs. So the answer is obviously not that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? We told you to leave us alone, verse 12. We told you to leave us alone. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Stop the movie. Pause the movie. What is their mindset? Everything is against us. Everything is against us. Was it? <laughs> Fast forward. Fast forward. To 15 verse 1. Fast forward to 15 verse 1. Remember the last time we see them is that they are basically saying, why would you bring us out here to die? Pharaoh and the most, the, the most brutal military force in the world is just next door getting ready to slaughter them. Pause. And now go to 15 verse 1. Then wh- where do we find them? They're on the other side of the Red Sea. Are they dead? Not even close. Are they depressed? Not even remotely. 15 verse 1, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Who is he talking about? Who are they talking about? Pharaoh and this military might of his. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. Verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest, choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Ha <laughs> ha! What? God working, moving the chess pieces on the chessboard of history. But they were just saying everything is against us, but God. But God. Brothers and sisters, there's more. I'm gonna give you another one. You've gotta look again. You've gotta look again. We could go through the Old Testament and we would see this pattern repeat over and over and over and over and over where we see whoever is the main character in this place of everything is against me. Everything is against me, but you fast forward and you factor in, but God, moving the chess pieces on the chessboard of history and everything changes. You've got to look again. You've got to keep reading. Now you jump into the New Testament. We have the Super Bowl of all events. And you know this so well if you know Jesus and know his word and love Jesus. You have Jesus himself, this, this carpenter prophet from redneck Nazareth. And he is turning the nation of Israel upside down with his teaching, with his miracles. And you have these roughneck disciples of his who have abandoned everything. They've left their jobs. They've quit on the spot to serve him, to follow him, to be around him. But in the process of this, he starts talking about his own death and they're going, wait a minute, time out. Stop, stop the bus. You're not gonna die. You're gonna be king. And he rebukes them as if they're Satan himself dissuading Jesus from his own destiny. And in a late night prayer meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Crushing, Jesus is arrested by Roman soldiers. And you know the story. He is nailed to a Roman cross. And six hours later, a trained Roman warrior takes his spear and rams it into the side of Jesus, up into the heart of Jesus. And outflows blood and water, meaning his heart had burst. He died of a broken heart. Freeze the frame. My printer just went off. I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> Freeze the frame. Jesus is taken down from the cross. He's wrapped in clothes grave clothes, and he's placed in a grave. Freeze frame. We see the disciples hiding out. We see them in despair. How did we get it so wrong? Peter goes back to fishing. Three days later, Crazy Mary, Crazy Mary Magdalene, begins to declare crazy stuff. She saw Jesus. She saw Jesus alive. And then other women verify that they went to the tomb and it was empty and they saw an angel. Peter and John run to the grave, it's empty as well. You know the story, you know the story, but get the point of it. First look, first look, depression, downcast. How did we blow it? Life is hard. Second look, God is at work. Listen to what Peter said. On the day of Pentecost, when he stands up, this Peter who denied Jesus, who was so confident of his faith in Jesus and then denies him three times, weeps bitterly with anguish of how could he have denied Jesus after loving him so much. This same Peter, who is now filled with the Holy Spirit of God, stands up on the day of Pentecost and he declares this. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 20 through, 22 through 24. He says this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know yourselves. You saw it. <laughs> This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of evil and godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. But God, look again, keep reading, and you see God at work every time. God is moving the chess pieces on the chessboard of history. I could go on and on and on. I'm not going to, I'm gonna go to our final thought and that is this, that is this. What is going on? I'm gonna ask this question, what is going on? What do you see virtually every time when you look again? What is going on in the big picture? Two things. There are two foundational principles at work. Or if you want to look at it this way, there are two rails that the train of history rolls down. Two rails. Number one is found in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 and it says this. He, God, makes everything work out according to his plan. Let me read it again. Get this. He... God makes everything work out according to his plan. The word make is the word energeo, which means God actively exerts and displays his power publicly. God actively exerts and displays his power publicly. Now, let me rephrase that verse. Here's what it could say in a little bit of an expanded version. God actively exerts his power so that every event in human history is a piece of the puzzle, moving history click by click closer to accomplishing his plan to finishing the puzzle, to arriving at the station, if you want to use the train analogy. Let me read that again. Ephesians 1.11, he makes everything work out according to his plan. Rephrase, God actively exerts his power so that every event, every event in human history is a piece of the puzzle. Moving history a click closer to accomplishing his plan, to finishing the puzzle. That's the first rail. What's the second rail? Number two, Romans 8.28, again, many of you know this and have memorized it, but think of it in this these terms, the second rail. He causes everything. So the last one, he makes everything work out according to his plan. Romans 8.28, he causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. To work together, he causes everything to work together. This is the Greek word from where, from whence we get our word synergy. It's the word synergo to cooperate, to assist, to serve together with. Synergy means a final outcome or a final result that is the sum of many individual pieces. Synergy. Synergo comes from synergos, which. <laughs> Means a companion in labor, a co-worker, someone who works with me, or a part of the team. A part of the team contributing to a finished product. All things work together for good. What does good mean? Good is the word agathos in Greek, and it means beneficial, useful, pleasant, honorable, or excellent. Excellent. Let me rephrase this verse. God displays his power and authority by causing every single issue, event, struggle, victory, defeat, gain, and loss in the lives of his children to be part of the team that produces an outcome for his children that is useful, beneficial, honorable, and excellent. God displays his power and authority by causing every single Issue, event, struggle, victory, defeat, gain, and loss in your life (laughs) to be part of the team. So next time you're in the middle of a struggle, just say, ah, it's just part of the team. Just part of the team. When you look at the news and you're saying, what in the world's going on? It's just a piece of the puzzle. In the big panoramic view, the big picture, piece of the puzzle. In your own personal photo, part of the team. God causes everything. He synergizes everything in your life. He puts, he synergizes and energo. He energizes every piece of the puzzle in history to fulfill His plan. Two rails. God's plan will be fulfilled, and His good plan in your life will also be fulfilled. And those are the two rails that the train of history rolls down. And if you only see history through your physical eyes, your physical emotions, you'll miss the train rolling down the track. You'll miss the real story. And that's my goal today, is to help you see the big picture. Now, last but not least, what conclusion do we come to when we see these two principles at work and when we look again? Here's what we come to. This is in Acts chapter 20. This is at the end of Paul's life. Paul is an old man, and Paul is talking to his friends, some of his co-workers and teammates, for the last time. And here's what he says in verse 20. Uh, verse 22 through 24. Chapter 20, 22 through 24. He says, Now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city that prison and hardships are facing me. First look, but Paul has seen the divine providential hand of God In his life so many times, he has looked again so many times. Paul understands that everything works together to fulfill God's purpose and that all things work together for his good because he loves God. Paul knows this in the very fabric of his being. So what is his conclusion to these things that in every city, hardship and prison are awaiting him? What is his conclusion? Is it everything is against me? not even close. What does he say? None of these move me. None of these move me. I'm not moved by this at all. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> Bring it on. And then he goes on to say in Romans 8 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, we are going to face some rough days. As believers, as those who hold to the truth of Scripture and love Jesus, I think we've got some rough days coming. But here's the reality of it. If we will look again, if we keep reading, we will understand God's plan will be fulfilled and his plan for us will be fulfilled. And it's always good. It's always good. These things are just team members bringing about a good purpose. And we can say then, like Paul, none of this moves me because I know that if God is for me, who can be against me? Amen? I pray that this, these two rails become very real in your life, that you look again at what God is doing. He's moving, he's moving, he's moving, he's moving, and his plan will be fulfilled and his good plan for you will be fulfilled. Works all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. This is good news. And so we charge into 2021 having our eyes attuned to what your word is saying, having our eyes clear and clean, seeing what you're doing. We're going to look again. We're going to keep reading, oh God. We commit that to you, and we will follow your leadership into the next year, and we go boldly. We go boldly because we know you're at work. You're at work in your war room, moving the pieces of history to fulfill your plan and your good plan in us, and we love it. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Bless you this week. Be bold, be strong. (laughs) Look again. Keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. God bless you guys. Thank you.